0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And the first thing that I'd like to do today is to thank our fellow saloners who have either paid for a copy of my Pay What You Can audiobook version of my novel. The Genesis Generation, or who made a direct donation to the salon to help pay for our server and bandwidth. Usually I send our donors a, a little thank you email note, but I've been holding off this month because I'd hope to be able to send you a direct link to the documentary that had its premiere at the recent Psychedelic Sciences Conference. It's the one that I've mentioned before, which is an interview that I gave about the MDMA scene in Dallas in the early 80s and it's titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. However, uh, there have been a few delays here in making it available online, but as soon as the producers let me know, I'll post the link to the uh, uh, video in the Salon Notes blog and on my Facebook page. But in the meantime, uh, like probably tomorrow, I'll at least try to get a little thank you note out to all of you wonderful souls who make these podcasts possible. And uh, now for today's podcast, I'm going to pick up on the Terrence McKenna workshop that we heard the first part of two podcasts back. As I mentioned back then, uh, this workshop took place in December of 1994, and the session was given no title, so I've had to pick out one or two things out of a dozen or so possible topics and uh, use one of them for a title today. And uh, as you listen to it with me right now, Should you come up with a better title, why don't you uh, post it in the comments section of the program notes for this podcast. And if I like it, I may even go to the work of changing the title in the program notes and in the MP3 file as uh, as well. Now a couple of things that you may want to note as we uh, go along on this little mind trip with the Bard McKenna is to pay attention to his sense of humor. Uh, particularly as it applies right in the beginning to what he calls nut theories. (laughs) And uh, while my tendency was uh, to cut out his discussion of the stoned ape theory, this time he approaches it from a different direction and allows us how some of his critics maybe have their good points as well. But what most caught me in this talk, and it was only a single sentence, but when he was talking about culture not being your friend, He also said, and this is the first time that I remember hearing this thought exactly as he said it, but he said that we humans have invented culture and placed it directly between ourselves and nature. Now, I don't know if that's going to resonate with you, but it sure has given me a new way of looking at the issue. But enough of me telling you what you're about to hear. Let's uh, just listen to a few more thoughts from Terrence McKenna on one morning in the winter of
1: 1994. I'm not very keen on the, the whole abduction shtick. I think that uh, one of the symptoms of cultural disintegration is simply that people lose the ability to distinguish between uh, dream and memory. And that somehow one's past, one's real past and one's dream past, simply become one's past. And then, under certain circumstances, you know, what was basically dream material is presented as reality. You know, just because you have a nut theory, it doesn't mean that you agree with other nut theories. (laughs) (laughs) In in fact, it it often makes you very hostile to them. After all, there's a limited pool there that we're all... (laughs) 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 My my idea with psychedelics, throughout my whole career with them, was that they were the purpose was to go out into mind space and hunt ideas and uh, bring something back to show the folks around the campfire something that would astonish and amaze us all well, you know, it's a narrow keyhole, the mind you can't... uh, you can't bring back a flower like the time traveler does in Wells' story. Uh, but So I found the only thing I could bring back, not being graphically endowed, was ideas. It's a very mysterious business, the, the revelation of, uh, uh, to mind of the world since the last time I talked to any audience, I, I finally understood an argument of my enemies that I had never understood before. Enemies in the, in the friendly, collegial, ideological sense. In other words, enemies. Uh, <clears throat> the countervailing theory to the evolution of consciousness, how it came to be so rapidly as opposed to the idea that it was stimulated by psychedelic compounds in the early human diet was, and I've ridiculed this idea to you before, the idea that uh, human beings throw things and because we were small and weak and we hunted very large animals we learned to hurl rocks with great accuracy And that this is a behavior not observed in the animal world. I mean, monkeys hurl feces in a generally downward direction to indicate displeasure. But their aim is lousy, uh, which is a very fortunate thing if you're an Amazon explorer. (laughs) Um, But human beings can hit with considerable force an object up to 120 feet away. And... uh, evolutionary biologists have fastened on this as uh, requiring so much coordination of neural material that there would be enough left over to invent Western civilization and explore the planets once you had this, uh, this thing down. Well, it always seemed somewhat preposterous to me and I pointed out that it would make the big league baseball pitcher the uh, paradigm of evolutionary accomplishment <laughs> in the human world if that standard were accepted. But now I understand the argument a little better. And it's, it's slightly deeper than I thought because here's, the, here's what they were trying to say the first time it isn't the, this neural coordination which is going on is really about planning. That it is an extraordinary thing to look at a rock in your hand and to make the calculation into the forward vector of the future. Aha! If I hope, hurl back and impart a certain energy in a certain direction with a certain intensity. This thing will follow a path through space and will land somewhere with benign consequences to me and my side. And it's the key concept in here is plan. This is a plan. And animals don't do this. There are no plans in the animal world their consciousness is of the moment and doesn't involve this complex triangulation out of the moment toward future consequences in quite this way because you see what happens when you let go of the rock is that you can no longer control it it isn't like hunting or beating something to death with a stick, where the strategy is being readjusted moment to moment. No. Once the, the projectile is released from your hand, that's all the planning you get to do. So it represents a concrescence of intent. And this building toward a concrescence of intent, this plan-making, then is the tiny flutter of the butterfly's wing that ripples out through the chaotic universe and the next thing you know, you know, the kings of Babylon are issuing their codes of law and slaves under the lash are erecting cities and, uh, you know, the stars are being brought into a mathematical model, so forth and so on. Well, uh... I just wanted to mention that I'm also working on a second book at the moment where we're going to go back into the psilocybin theory of the origin of consciousness and uh, actually attempt to make a case that will demand attack in other words to actually marshal all of the anatomical, paleontological, primate data because Uh, The more we research, the more it appears true that by looking at the psychedelics, in fact, they become a kind of key to understanding the entire phenomenon of human emergence by looking at the larger issue of food as um, an environmental dimension. In other words, our food... uh, has shaped us. As omnivores, we have exposed ourselves to a very high input of mutagenic material over the course of our omnivorous behavior. Uh, And this has accelerated the rate of mutation in our species. This is why there are so many cancers. Those cancers are maladaptive mutations. Most are. Most mutations are non Uh, productive. But by being a creature of the jungle canopy, who underwent a forced migration to an entirely different nutritional environment, the grassland, uh, we opened ourselves up to this mutagenic influence. And it's only the, the spectacular effect of the psychoactive compounds impacting on neural organization, cognition, and social organization that I focused on originally. But now the realization is beginning to ripple out uh, through the evolutionary community that, yes, this is the the hidden factor, the, the mutagenic diet and the forced shift in environment. There are also ideologically unexpected twists and turns in all this. I've recently met a very interesting person, he's going to be my co-author on this evolution book, uh, Philippe uh, de Vaujolais. some of you may know him, and he is a lover of animals. Uh, this guy has made a fortune in publishing books on reptile care, and if you have a broken iguana, he's the man to see. <laughs> but. He pointed out something to me very, very interesting, which goes against prevailing political correctness for sure, which is that browsing ungulate animals have absolutely no interest in the behavior of other animals. They couldn't give a hoot. Who's interested in the behavior of other animals are hunting animals. And that in order to successfully hunt an animal, you must, in a sense, be able to become it. You must be able to transfer your consciousness into it and imagine its motivations, its behaviors, so forth and so on. And so, Philippe has convinced me that on one level, the earliest human consciousness was not human consciousness at all. It was primate ability to enter into the behavior patterns and psychologies of uh, other mammals in the grassland environment that it was predating upon, uh, following vultures as a basis for the beginning of nomadism and this sort of thing. Obviously, predator animals are aware And their evolutionary success is based on environmental awareness and being able to uh, act uh, based on inputting the behavior of other animals. This is a very complex mental world compared to the world of the fruititarian leaf-eating canopy browser uh, that we came from. And then it appears, you know, that in a series of coalescing involutions of culture and neural organization driven by uh, the spatial coincidence of human beings, cattle, mushrooms, Uh, our original primate programming was restructured And I've talked a great deal about this. I think this is the key to understanding at least our sexual politics. uh, All primates have what are called dominance hierarchies. And this is where the hard-bodied, sharp-fanged males, young males... Arrange everybody else to suit themselves. The elderly, the sexually available females, the young, homosexuals, the sick, everybody gets told where to stand and what to do. This is how primates operate. This is how we operate. However, I think that for a long period in human beings, this was interrupted by uh, nutritional factors and drug factors in the environment. That in a sense, a human society that is using psilocybin on even a lunar cycle of use is suppressing the ordinary pattern of male dominance, hierarchical dominance. It's not genetically touching it, It's still there, but in the same way that if you give a population of aggressive people a lot of opium, aggression disappears. If you give a population of people a kind of psychedelic boundary-dissolving aphrodisiac that promotes group bonding and erodes monogamy and so forth, then you get a different social ambiance than if that weren't present. And I think the secret to understanding our curious relationship to the angelic and animal worlds has to do with the fact that under the influence of this hormone-slash-enzyme, which was suppressing ordinary patterns of male dominance, consciousness underwent an extraordinary series of bifurcations. And language, theater, poetry... Magic, religion, dance, music, ethical values, altruism, everything emerged, you know, sometime between 35,000 and 10,000 years ago. The Paleolithic, the pre agricultural era, Uh, an extraordinary uh, period of novelty being uh, expressed and conserved in the biological world. The primate species, the hominids, suddenly just take the stage and through an amazing series of cultural transformations become a planet ruling species by 10,000 years ago. And then, not content with that, the process doesn't slow down, uh, it Accelerates, and this has to do with the fact that we have somehow created through language a kind of adaptive strategy that is so flexible that unlike most adaptive strategies, which sooner or later run into a blind box canyon and are just simply trapped there, butting their heads against the wall, you see it everywhere, the muscles down on the rocks, and uh, you know most evolutionary developmental lines are dead ends. But somehow we broke free of that by ceasing to be defined by the physical body, which is the stuff upon which evolution works, and placing between ourselves and our environment a a new thing called culture, we began to mediate evolution. You know, evolution says uh, the infirm, the idiot, the lame must die. Culture says, we have different values about this. Maybe yes, maybe no, but we will decide. Uh, Evolution says, you know, you must be a scattered species, nomadic and moving across the surface of the planet like an animal. Culture says, no, we have strategies for food sequestration and common defense and we will build cities and so forth and so on. And so, since about... You know, pick a number, 10,000 years ago, evolution has not been the, uh, the dominating factor, biological evolution. Instead, there is something else, which the word epigenetic has been suggested, meaning change not driven by genes. Our genes are the same. If you were to be with a group of people active 10 to 15,000 years ago, they would look and just like you and I. We haven't changed that much. We've mixed the genes, but we haven't particularly added new ones or lost genes. But in the epigenetic realm... How many languages have been generated over the past 10,000 years? How many world religions have come and gone? How many systems of government? Uh, How many uh, theories of polity and society? We just furiously cast these things off. And, beginning about 500 years ago, this phenomenon became, was embraced as a permanent aspect of human existence in Western Europe. And the concept of progress w- became enshrined. And progress is the idea that this process must go on, be extended and accelerated everywhere. And, and now it seems to be happening. I think... And, as a consequence of this acceleration of process, all the contradictions in the old system, and I mean reaching back to Egypt, all the contradictions in the old system are now on the surface. And because I believe psychedelics are a kind of higher dimensional sectioning of reality... I think they give the kind of stereoscopic vision necessary to hold the entire hologram of what's happening um in your mind. The old paradigm is is gone. I mean, we can talk about how different parts of it died, you know, maybe not everybody knows the story of how Physics, the paradigmatic uh, science of reason, turned into a place where nothing makes any sense at all, you know, and where stories are told so wild that a surrealist painter would flee from the gathering just shaking (laughs) his head. That's physics. The very bedrock of the whole Western shtick has turned into a, a, a place of of utter psychedelic contradiction and chaos. And the news hasn't reached biology and psychology. They're still operating under different paradigms. But what is keeping science alive at this point is the fact that it is able to whore itself to the marketplace. But in terms of the old program, which was providing some kind of uh, metaphysical uh, recitation of the nature of the universe, it's pretty clearly out of reach at this point. I mean, the, the universe has been discovered to be stranger than you can, suppose. And what this means to the troops, which is you and me, the citizens of these linear, print created, scientism ruled, democratic industrial states, what it means to us is that you get your mind back. Uh, they have no need of it anymore. Uh, it's actually become a burden to them. I mean, yes, they struggled like hell to take it, but then they discovered that it really wasn't worth all that much, anyhow. The great thing about living in the twilight of an imperial decline is the permission that exists. You know, incredible resources lay before us and very few people are looking over your shoulder and telling you what to do. I mean, the fact that this community has been able to persist and exist Uh, I mean, this is the Orphic community. This is the tradition of dissent, ecstasis, uh, sexual ambiguity, uh, so forth and so on, that reaches right back to Chalcolithic Greece and beyond. I mean, shamanism is about shape shifting. Shamanism is about doing uh, phenomenology with a toolkit that works. And uh, no religion, no philosophy, I think, has ever gone very far down the road of understanding. Understanding is not really a collective enterprise, understanding is an individual enterprise. And, you know, you can read Husserl and you can um, become a Hasid or you can assimilate these group understandings that are forms of wisdom. But ultimately, those are platforms for um, intrepid exploration. And now, at the end, I think, of this entire enterprise. I mean, I don't know whether I'm changing or the world is changing or both, but it has gotten so rich recently that it's like an enormous meal at some over-reviewed restaurant where you just have to push yourself away and say, you know, the spectacle is endless and amazing and apparently it's all going to come true. And uh, my impulse is to distance myself from it all. I mean, the, it, it is... Um, well, the mushroom sent to me once, it said, uh, this is what it's like when a species prepares to depart for the stars. This is not unusual. I mean, the earth quakes, the oceans boil, the planet came into existence for this. All life for over a billion years has been pointed toward taking this step. You know, leaving the oceans for the land was dress rehearsal for what will now be done. And, you know, it's chilling because it's so huge. I mean, you don't even know, well, it's just enormous. And yet, uh, apparently, when you look back through the history of the universe, this is how it proceeds incredibly gradually over staggering scales of time. But then every once in a while you come around the corner and there it is a continent sinks an asteroid impacts a star explodes uh, 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 two intelligent species meet somewhere out in the cosmos and these things then you know set ripples going for eons Yeah.
0: I'm curious what this has to do with psychedelics because it seems to me that you know when you use psychedelics to break down perceptual barriers Mm -hmm. that's one thing but there's such momentum going on in the world today that things are breaking down without psychedelics, although it may appear psychedelic in terms of the way you see it. Do you see what I'm
1: getting at? Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, so
0: at this juncture, have we transcended psychedelics?
1: Well, the, my idea is you know, that the psychedelic recapitulates on the personal scale this universal meltdown that is going on without the need of psychedelics. But this universal meltdown is very frightening to people. Uh, most people are, are pattern-oriented and nostalgic and they, they are, it scares them. And I think psychedelics are a way to, it's sort of like doing calisthenics in preparation for the marathon at the end of time. Uh, you know, uh, pe- people who have taken psychedelics should be in a better position to assure reassure everybody else they 'll just say, "Well, you know people will say the laws of physics are breaking down he said look i 've seen it before <laughs> so and and in a way this this thing, this event which wants to emerge. We think of it as quantized in a single moment where the the shift will happen and it's like the glory or something. But in a way, our job, if we have a job, and I'm not sure we do, but if we have a job, then our job is to anticipate this and to live it out before it happens. Somebody very dear to me said to me 25 years ago, my God, I don't know how they... Actually, it was in the same conversation where they said, history is the shockwave of eschatology. How anybody could say that in 1975, I do not understand. Anyway, uh, he also said, we should live as though the apocalypse has, actu- has already occurred. That's the only way to transcend the historical hysteria. Because the historical hysteria is about this thing which it might happen, it won't happen, it will happen. No, you say, it did happen. It did happen. So enough about that already. And we are building, you know, each thing that we do anticipates this deeper fall inward into the dream. The dream is what awaits us at the end of history. The dream, and you can call it hyperspace or cyberspace or the trans-death realm, but what it really is is it's a going into the dream. And what is the dream? Well, the dream is a place where the laws are set by the imagination. The imagination is God in the dream. And if there is a way for us to mirror our highest aspirations, in other words, to inculcate the God image in ourselves, then it's by becoming the masters of our dream and then creating through drugs, technology, magic, who cares, the details come later, creating a way to share that so that we each then are a God with an open office doorway to all the other gods who wander through, looking at the the, the cosmogonies that we produce as art. I was thinking about this this morning because I was thinking, you know, what am I going to say to these folks? <laughs> and I was thinking about the the Platonic triad of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so, sometimes people have dissed me and my obsession with hallucination. Because they say, you know, well, LSD doesn't really cause hallucination. It causes insight and uh, complex thoughts. But why are you so focused on visual hallucination? Which I am. I mean, I just if it doesn't do that, I'm not interested. Uh, and then I thought the way into it is Plato talks about the good, the true, and the beautiful. But the key concept is beautiful because good, it's abstract, true, it's abstract. But beauty is felt, perceived with the senses as music, as painting, whatever it is. And so the, the bridge to the metaphysical absolutes of truth and the good is through the palpable realm of the beautiful, and to my mind, this is what these psychedelics achieve. You know, they they, as Huxley said, you know, they they dial open the valve of consciousness, or as Blake implied, you know, the the the. Uh, window of perception is cleansed and then you see through into an infinite holographic recursive world of mind and affectionate um, intelligence. And somehow this mystery is in the body and therefore outside of time and therefore beyond, in some sense, the reach of culture. Sex is like this to some degree. Sex is in the body and outside of time, and culture spends a huge amount of its energy trying to reach sex, trying to contort it, push it one way or another, and has uh, you know, produced some pretty bizarre themes and variations, but generally speaking has failed. I mean, no society certainly has ever gotten rid of sex even though, you know, there have been societies ruled for a thousand years by men wearing dresses, but uh, gave us some of the most ribald minstrelsy uh, around. Uh, so there is this mystery in the body. I'm now returning to the subject of psychedelics. Beyond the reach of cultural uh, manipulation... And discovering this and exploring it is somehow the frontier of maturity. Culture is a form of enforced infantilism. You know, it's the last nursery and most people never leave it. And they are perfectly happy to interpret the world through the reassuring nonsense of their cultural values, whatever they may happen to be. The reason psychedelics are so politically dynamite is because they cast doubt on this final cultural envelope of insulation. And they do it very democratically. It doesn't matter what your cultural conditioning is, it falls into question under the influence of the psychedelic. And then, for most people, that's frightening. Frightening enough that they not only don't want to do it, but they are also keen to see that other people don't do it because they realize this is some kind of a doorway through which demons come. Disruptive ideologies, strange forms of music, bizarre behaviors, unpleasant fashions. Uh, It's all coming from this place where these people are messing around. And so there is an impulse uh, to close it off. And so there is, you know, a a tradition 50,000 years old of shamanism slash bohemianism. Uh, people who are deputized to be weird and are told okay, you be weird we'll give you a hut at the edge of the village you be weird and if we need you we'll call that's basically the role no, don't buy... We'll call you, you know. I mean, the, the political position of shamans is fascinating in these societies because they share it, but they are not of it, you know, and they're only asked in when things are really desperate. To... <laughs> and, and I think, you know, bohemianism, this Orphic tradition I've talked about this, that goes back, way, way back, is the continuation of that and so we here represent to some degree a self-selected group of these Orphic eccentrics which who carry this charge of otherness. In many languages the word shaman means go between go-between. Shaman moves between levels. And the mythologies differ, you know, either into a spirit world or an ancestor world or an animal world. But the go-between. And... uh, Now, let me see if I can tie this all up. Oh, I know. I wanted to follow this thing out about the suppression of male dominance through chemicals and diet and psilocybin and all that. The reason that is fascinating to me, aside from the fact that it answers some real conundrums in, in... hominid evolutionary arguments is that it then has an implication for the present because we are the, the damaged heirs of, this, of a damaged cultural style which has been practiced now for about 7,000 years. And, you know, there have been various corrective measures, all failures, I think, uh, Christianity, Christ, a corrective measure. Somebody who comes who says, you know, don't do it that way. You know, and they get rid of him, and within 50 years, the church he founded is dealing real estate. And, you know, then you get it in Islam, another corrective effort. But these things have not worked. The cultural style has been too toxic. And with the rise of modern science and the acceleration of the toxic consequences of bad ideology, we now come to the 20th century. And throughout the 20th century, there has been an impulse, yeah. What means bad ideology? Ideology that has consequences that are bad for the environment and and the gene pool. Who knows what is bad for the environment? Well, nobody knows absolutely, but when you think about things like plutonium and nuclear weapons stockpile, I mean, I agree with you that in the largest picture, moral relativism makes it impossible to say anything about good and bad. But I'm not that morally relativistic. I think biology should be preferred over its absence. And that... Uh, intelligence should be preferred over its absence. Um, So I'm in the... Because I think the universe wants to preserve novelty. I mean, that could actually be the basis of a kind of ethic. Bad is that which destroys novelty, and good is that which promotes it. It sounds awfully progressive. (laughs) I remember the first time I was in Pakistan, and I caught this rickshaw into Lahore... And this guy was pu- being pulled by a human being, you know, muscle power. And this guy said, oh, you're an American, this and that. And he, and he said, you know, what's? Re-? He said, this country is screwed up. This country is really screwed up. And I said, well, what's wrong with it? And he said, you want to know what's wrong with it? Progress. Too much progress. And this was a man who made his living pulling people around in a rickshaw. So, you know, it, it's a, a relativistic thing. But, but what I wanted to say was, um, there is an intelligence in the species that is deeper than the societies and the systems that we erect to rule us. And this wisdom of the species can make enormous changes in the evolution of the mass psyche, such as the Renaissance. For example. And in the 20th century, this has taken the form of what I call the Archaic Revival. And one of my books is called The Archaic Revival. The 20th century, which is a vast stage crowded with different kinds of competing social phenomena, art movements, so forth and so on. Nevertheless, I think the entire thing is illuminated by the notion that what it is about is an impulse toward archaism. That in the sciences, the arts, everywhere, the archaic ideal is raising its protean head. And it begins with Freud in the early years of the 20th century discovering by interviewing these Viennese bourgeois housewives that, you know, m- human beings were brutes and that, you know, incest, rape, all the stuff was right below the surface. The rediscovery of uh, of uh, the beast. And, you know, certainly Germany developed that theme up into the 40s. Meanwhile... Uh, people were bringing African masks to Paris and cubism was basing its early theory on the deconstruction of primitive art. Meanwhile, people like Eric Satie were abandoning the canons of classical composition in music and the 12-tone row was being experimented. Jazz was being uh, given new attention and, and for its primitiveness, its rhythm, its sense of something beyond the reach of civilization. Meanwhile, the deconstruction of painting that had begun with Impressionism, which, you know, Impressionism is simply 20 minutes into LSD, uh, had, had gone deeper, had developed first of all into the deconstructive spirit of Dada where people tore up telephone directories and rang bells while they uh, you know, did something else. In other words, the absurd appears for the first time, an enormous theme in 20th century life, just incoherent, the incoherent idiocy of it all. And then surrealism, taking up the the Freudian tune, begins to portray these worlds of, uh, of distorted association and so forth and so on. Well, all this is about boundary dissolution. It was happening on the bohemian left. It was happening on the fascist right. The rise of Marxism is a collectivist theory of society, very concerned with collectivism, so forth and so on. And then... You know, enormous changes. Auschwitz, the atom bomb, space flight. And now where we are is for 10, 15 years there has been this awareness that it is about uh, direct experience of the numinous. And it's been hideously marketed and raped by our, the entrepreneurial instinct and peddled back to us as dozens of new age cults diced up and presented as different from each other but the impulse toward this authentic dissolving experience is real it was there in theosophy it was there in the beats it came up through the hippies, it survived the trivialization of the new age and and it has now found its way into the youth culture into uh, rave, and uh, house music, and that whole thing. And it's healthy, healthier than it ever was. Well, the central figure in all of this, when you get it down to the idea that a culture must have a culture hero, uh, meaning a paradigmatic uh, ideal to constellate around, uh, the central figure, has, it has been realized is the shaman who is you know this person of indeterminate depth everyone else has a determinable depth they are the linear cardboard people walking around but the shaman is of indeterminate depth that's why the, that's the secret of Carlos Castaneda's magic he creates a literary character that in any other culture would be deemed mythical But because of our attitude toward the depth of the shaman, we can't tell. We can't tell. And we deputize this kind of depth in rock stars, uh, in uh, culture heroes of various sorts, and worshipped that for the past 20 years or so. Well, then slowly it has dawned that... The position of worshiper is not the most satisfying position. The only position that satisfies is to be that thing, and what that, and then at that point you're at the psychedelic crossroads, I think, because you will either make a uh, how do uh, how can I put it well a, a conservative decision and seek a guru uh, of some sort and be lost in that which is a whole shell game or you will simply cut through the human domain and make a pact with a plant a substance and then you will at that moment be at the threshold of your adulthood You know, that's leaving home Home is culture. Home is all is this fabric of, of imaginary values that have been created and maintained by a pathological culture. And so, you know, it's a personal thing, ultimately. Very controversial, not easy to do. And, um, and then once done, you know, it has to be integrated, dealt with, thought about. And, and that, as far as I can tell, is a task that extends well beyond the yawning grave.
2: When so you talked about
1: the dream, it reminded me of the Aboriginal culture, and that's kind of how they live their lives in the, in the dream time. Is that what you're talking about, living in the dream,
2: being in touch with...
1: Yeah, to some degree. I, I don't know that much about Aboriginals. I'm interested. I read Bruce Chatwin's book, Songlines, and I found it absolutely fascinating. And if you want an example, I mean, I'll talk about it for a minute because it bears on something I'm very interested in. Uh, part of the transformation that I think is going to happen to us lies in the way we deal with language neurologically. Because under the influence of psychedelics, especially t- short acting tryptamines like DMT, you experience phenomena which seem to be uh, transformations of the language modality. And I've described this stuff as visible language, that you can actually sing meaning into visible existence. And I've seen this on ayahuasca. This is what ayahuasca is about, the famous group states of mind that anthropologists talk about what they really are are uh, three dimensional acoustical sculptures that are made by groups of people who are loaded and it's an extraordinary thing it's uh, it's an experience you can't have any other way and it's ju- not quite telepathy or perhaps more than telepathy and I th- the key concept in communications is bandwidth. Bandwidth. The more bandwidth you have, the more detail, color, tone uh, you can impart to your signal. Well, a very low bandwidth uh, channel is the small mouth noise channel. I mean, this is about as, as primitive as it gets. I mean, short of doing it in Morse code, doing it by voice is uh, very, very... It's amazing that we understand each other at all. And in fact, you may have noticed one of the most uncool things you can do is ask somebody, would you explain to me what I just said? And they say, oh, well, uh, oh, dear, I, I'm afraid I was, uh, well, general, you know, and a lot of floundering around. Uh, in these ayahuasca states, what you see are group-generated acoustical hallucinations. And because ayahuasca is composed of psychedelic compounds which occur in normal brain chemistry, in other words, nothing exotic to human brain tissue is present, it raises the question, well, how close is normal metabolic chemistry to having an ability to do this? And the answer is... Nobody knows, but very, very close. The pineal gland produces adenoglomerotropane, which is a beta carboline A 6 methoxy occurs, or maybe it is adenoglomerotropane, I can't remember. Anyway, there are active beta-carbolines produced in brain metabolism. And language is such an odd phenomenon anyway in our species. I mean, notice that you have to have two people to do it, which raises a real question about how you get that coordinated the first time out. Uh, And and it's a behavior. It isn't an organ. It isn't like my arm, my nose. It's a behavior, and a learned behavior. And yet a behavior so much more complex than any other behavior you ever, ever learn. I mean, if, you could, if the average person could walk like the average person could talk, they would be a prima ballerina of the Russian ballet. It's very interesting that we have such facility for the linguistic enterprise and uh, how, ev- how it evolves. It's changing all the time and well is it just changing in a kind of forward lateral direction or is there some kind of vertical gain here I mean can we actually describe things better to each other than the ancient Greeks could describe things to each other can we say things which they couldn't say or anything of consequence Uh, and I maintain yes I maintain that culture you know, freeways, international airports and so forth and so on. That's just the trailing edge of of evolving language. Well, so, um, here's a story which relates to this uh, that is in Bruce Chatwin's book Songlines. There are these things called songlines which cross Australia and uh, they can be thousands of miles long. And uh, if you're a shaman and one of these things crosses your territory, then you, must, you are the keeper of the, of the song, of that part of the line. You must learn and keep this song. There are 137 Aboriginal languages in Australia. So these people did the following thing. They went to a place near one end of the song line, and they recorded a shaman singing his song of that place and then they went two thousand miles to another part of the same song line and they found the song keeper of that place and they played the guy's song for him and it was in a language he didn't speak and he had never been away from his own home he had never been to this place so he listened to the song and after a while He began to sing with it, not the words, but the melody. And he sang with it, uh, the way you could sing with green sleeves if you didn't know the words, but you heard the the melody. And then, after it was over, he said, uh, the man who sang this song, his place is a butte with three mountains, and eucalyptus filling the valley, and a red rock like a lizard over here. So then they tried to analyze, you know, what is happening here? Is this telepathy? Is it magic? What is it? And I think the key to understanding it lies in, I've recently seen, you can actually buy for about $600 a piece of software where you glue electrodes to your head and sit down in front of your computer and you see an undulating landscape of neural redoubts that look, lo and behold, like mountains, valleys, escarpments. It's like a visit to Utah. And I am convinced... That what's happening is that when you listen, when the shaman listens to the first shaman's song, he does not process the sound the way we do. He processes it the way this computer is processing this neurological input, and what he's seeing is an acoustical environment of sound, and he can see the place. The song is the way it is because the song is not a song. The song is a hologrammatic acoustogram of the topology of the land through which the song line passes. These people are called the most primitive people in the world, remember? So uh, I I just recently uh, became aware of this. It's very exciting to me. I'm interested in this software. But this is the kind of thing that lies out there. Because uh, you see, the world arrives at the surface of your skin as one thing. But the, 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 the senses bifurcate. The incoming signal. The light goes to the eyes, the acoustical signal goes to the ears, the tactile signal is conveyed through the skin and uh, and, and so then when we reconstruct the world, the wells are showing rather prominently in the model and uh, and what happens with the psychedelics is it seems as though somewhere deep in the brain there is a Uh, an organ or a program that can take all of the incoming sensory data and actually recombine it into a synesthetic whole which is neither seen nor felt nor heard but which is, you know, hologrocked or something. (laughs) Uh, a, A sense which unites all of the other senses and that's what i call going into this informational superspace. that's what the psychedelic experience is it's a it reunifies the sensory datum of uh, of the world and i might add the whole world not the surface of the world which is what is conveyed to us by light but you know uh, the, the the internal dimension of transcendence which is in the world uh, is also present
2: yeah it's uh, very interesting that you, you mentioned that binding together of the senses I attended a conference earlier this year called a, toward a scientific basis for consciousness in um, Arizona and a number of the presentations focused on the way in which the brain operates when this binding takes place and it turns out that Different cortical groups start to talk to one another by oscillating together in phase. All right. And uh, when they're phase locked like that, then they bind this information into a whole. And I'm, I'm reminded of the research of Michael Persinger up at Laurentian University in, in Canada, who has been focusing on um, the electromagnetic field of the Earth and its effect on the brain. In particular, he's been interested in the correlation between earthquake activity and ghost sightings and such like. But he's pointed out that the the Earth's magnetic field is ringing like a bell and that the main power of of oscillation is around 10 hertz, which um, uh, happens to be the alpha rhythm in the human brain. And he's postulated that, in some cases, brains can phase-lock to the geomagnetic field and that the geomagnetic field oscillations can serve as a kind of a carrier frequency to bind these uh, cortical uh, resonances basically uh, together for brief periods of time and uh, has speculated that this might be uh, the source for ESP-like activity. Are you
1: familiar with that theory? Yeah, he wrote a wonderful book called Space-Time Transience and Unusual Events. Uh, He's been very creative with using the electromagnetic field as an explanation for all kinds of things, and I'm totally open-minded to that. Uh, His work is very interesting. It does seem to be true that along earthquake faults, you do get piezoelectric build-up and release. And, uh, you know, the world is full of bizarre phenomena. Some of you may have seen in Science News last week, for the first time, they have confirmed these enormous blue and red lights above seventy five thousand feet in the atmosphere airline pilots have been seeing these things for years nobody there was no theory nobody knew what they were now NASA dedicated an expedition uh, one of their aircraft to looking at this and they got thousands of images of these things and it's an electrical phenomenon theory doesn't account for and nobody knows what it means uh, On one level, I'm sympathetic to Persinger and and that approach to explaining some of these things, and I do think the place has been overlooked in importance. On another level, this is a very hard thing to talk about, um, but there is like what I call linguistic viruses which infect the effort to communicate and they're very hard to catch at work, so... And and it has to do with how can people believe things which are absurd. And it's very interesting to spend time with people who believe that things are something which is absurd. And it's... I, you know, a lot of people bring raps to me that they want confirmation or disconfirmation on. And uh, I, mentioned, I passed this way last night when I talked about the rules of evidence. The, the standard of discourse has decayed to the point where it's very hard to get uh, any kind of consensus about anything because most people participating don't know how the game is played. And uh, linguistic viruses really are responsible for much more of reality than we suppose. Uh, I suppose I can't really talk about this without stepping on somebody's toes. So let me, let me pick... Uh, well, for example, uh, crop circles. Crop circles are important. And uh, what was going on at the England end was uh, it, these things were uh, absurd. I mean, you had only to see one to understand what was going on and, and to see that a, a confluence of British eccentricity, ripe grain, uh, a, a certain ambiance in the air was allowing these things to come into being and then the, the media... Was fanning it into existence. Well, now, how does this work? Uh, Talking of coupled oscillators and and Persinger and all that. that Pardon me. Oh, that the 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 paranormal phenomenon has an impact in an inverse square relationship to the distance you are from the event. (laughs) You see, because here's how it works. The media is reporting the onrushing phenomenon of existence. Stock markets, wars, diplomatic meetings, gangster killings, so forth and so on. Then something weird happens. Now, I have a job, you have a job. We note that something weird has happened. But it doesn't affect us. But scattered through the society, there are people who, when they open their paper and say, strange... pattern in Wheatfield near Wiltshire they look and say aha, I knew it this is what we've been waiting for this is the sign and they jump in their car and they drive to Wiltshire to look at the crop circle and they get there first well then comes the press and they say well what is this Say, well the farmer doesn't know and everybody's standing around and finally the weird person takes courage and says well actually I've been studying a peculiar form of biological energy for some 30 years and uh, my theory uh, and you're off and running at that point and, uh, so weirdness attracts weirdos who then interpret the weirdness very weirdly because they came with sharpened axes to grind, you see, and, uh, it, 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 the crop circle thing was a test case for this this is why I spend so much time on it it did no credit to anybody the occult just went sailing over the edge and science hardly behaved any better because there was this guy if any of you are interested in this there's a wonderful book called Around in Circles by Jim Schnabel that goes into all this but there was a fellow named Terence Meaton. <laughs> who was a meteorologist. And when the first crop circles appeared and the the weirdos began talking about telluric forces, messages from Atlantis, and so forth and so on, he jumped into the fray and said, Nonsense, nonsense. The, this is a meteorological phenomenon in the warm days of summer on the lee side of these certain kinds of hills a kind of circular uh, low pressure wind can get going and uh, this is nothing to get excited about, and we've got the statistics and so forth and so on. And the press loved him. They loved him as much as the screwballs. And they would put him on, and first they would interview the mad people, and then Terence Meaton would come on and and poo-poo it away. So that was the first year of the crop circles. The next year the crop circles became considerably more elaborate with arrows coming off of them and zigzags and so forth and so on bring terence meaton on to the scene and he says well you know the new field of dynamic instability indicates that the mathematical solutions to these breakdown states are very complicated and unusual patterns and so then the next year, it was inconceivably complex, the crop circles. Meanwhile, you know, crop circle time is in the springtime. It's dead in the winter because the fields are empty. So, so Meaden had used the winter time to go to uh, the Institute of Electrostatic Physics in Nagoya and came back full of... Uh, talk about plasma roving plasmic fields and uh, this sort of thing and armed with the roving plasmic fields no crop circle was too bizarre to not be <laughs> proclaimed the product of natural forces and, and he, this went on and finally BBC 2 and you know you can think about this what you like but uh they made a crop circle in frustration with this whole thing. They made a crop circle. And among the <clears throat> crop circle cognoscenti, there are certain moves that are the favorite moves, that are the authenticating moves, the no human being could possibly do it moves. And so the, the BBC Two people made a very good crop circle. And they brought Terence Meadon out and uh, said, you know, Terence, we've just spotted one over here and get you right to the scene before the tourists get there. And they toured with him and he pointed out, you know, the distinguishing characteristics, no doubt about it. And then they sat him down in the center of this field and they said, Terence, we made it. (laughs) And, you know, it's a horrible thing, actually, to see... Uh, a grown man cry (laughs) Uh, because, you know, I mean, he is devastated but, and then, uh, you know, and this is just one of moments you know, Rupert, my comrade in arms, Sheldrake was one of the people who sponsored the contest that basically put the crop circles out of business because the claims were fantastic, you know no person could do this, so forth and so on. So they, what they did is they, they got farmers to uh, donate 10-acre tracts of English corn, which is wheat, and uh, for 50 pounds you could enter. And everybody had to make the same crop circle, which was one chosen to have all the difficult uh, little schmiggies in it and you could use no lights you had to go into the field at 10 p.m. and be out by 4 a.m. and uh, at dawn you know the helicopters flew over with the video crews and then crop circles were toured on the ground and awards were made and this guy Jim Schnabel who wrote this book I mentioned uh, by himself in total darkness in two and a half hours, made uh, the winning entry. And it was a very close tie between him and a helicopter crew from a nearby air base who also made one. So, uh, and and yet, and this is to some degree the whole point of the story, and yet there are people whose eyes fill with tears when I do this rap because they haven't heard and it will never die now, I'm convinced. It's an informational virus loose in the world. And, you know, crop circles will occasionally appear. And uh, But it was really a breakout f- that was so predictable from the unconscious that it amazed me while it was going on. How many friendships were strained over this thing? Uh.
2: Isn't that kind of also a recapitulation of the history of the Catholic Church?
1: <laughs> and the fall of the Ming Dynasty, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> yes. It's like a a virus embedded
2: within the virus here because part of what happens when these sorts of things erupt onto the media scene and this is true for ufo you know whenever one of those outbursts take place um, is that there's this incredible elaboration and and complexity that emerges in the kinds of stories that people are telling the abduction thing would be the latest by the way persinger is involved in that too by showing that electromagnetic fields to the brain can induce these weird out-of-the-body experiences but in the case of crop circles, they've been reported for many decades, but they've not received much attention. They're just little circles that have a spiral pattern in them, and they've been seen around the world. And I, I, my personal view is that there's probably a series of different phenomena that have been shoveled into one category. But when the media gets a hold of them, all crop circles are the same. And when fractal design starts showing up outside the university campus there, you know, the, the Mandelbrot set, which is one of the most ridiculous of them, crop circle patterns, uh, the the media presents the image that these are all the same, they're all the same phenomena, And so consequently, probably, I I wouldn't be surprised that Meaden might be right at some level that there are dust devil-like phenomena. No, I agree with you completely. I
1: mean, they tracked down a 1733 account of something called the Devil's Mower, Uh, and, you know, I w- grew up in western Colorado and part of my right of initiation into manhood was enforced elk hunting uh, on horseback every autumn. And we would come upon these places in the forest that had been whirled down. And the explanation was just uh, these are deadfalls from whirlwinds, but it always seemed to me had anybody ever seen one of these things occur it was a very odd explanation yes it's about informational distortion and decay you're, you're quite right I I went to a flying saucer convention against my better judgment and uh, I learned more my, evol- my opinion about flying saucers evolved more over that weekend than in the previous 30 years of being interested in flying saucers and I was you know, read all the books, all the special cases. I knew the data and all that, but I had never hung out with flying saucer people. And it was so obviously a private Idaho that I just couldn't wait to get away. And I, I, I think, I don't know, there are two impulses in the human psyche, I mean, at least two in this case. And I, am just, I just don't resonate with believers in anything. I mean, I, I, get in, I get insulting to Buddhists, for God's sake. I mean, it's just something about their smugness and their whole bit that just brings... I just want to squash it. <laughs> so you can imagine how I behave in the presence of Scientologists and, uh, and the rest of it. Uh, <coughs> belief is, is um, it's, again, it's a form of infantilism. Uh, there is no grounds for believing anything. And uh, uh, the flying saucer thing, I went to this conference imagining that what I would meet would be a whole bunch of really interesting, sincere people who wanted to discuss uh, the phenomenon of unexplained things in the sky and contacting human beings. And what I found was, you know, booth after booth of people who had all the answers, all the answers. Learn how a nearby planet reduced crime by 500%. I got news for you, not even God can reduce crime by 500%. (laughs) Once you've reduced it 100%, you've got it. (laughs) So I said, you know, this was the quality of thinking that was going on. And then there were a lot of really scary people in brown leather shoes with thin smiles and and cheap suits who were clearly uh, third-rate, semi-retired intelligence hacks who were there to keep the flock headed in the right direction. And... uh, you know, people wanted to talk about f- experiments on human fetal tissue that go on in underground laboratories out in Arizona through the connivance of the CIA and the Palladian High Command. And you just think, uh, well, I've got to call my broker. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I, have, I, to me, if you can't, well... It's an aesthetic thing. It's an aesthetic thing. I believe that great weirdness stalks the universe. That's not the issue with me. But it's not tacky. It is not tacky. And people who wear low-cut gowns with a lot of sequins on them and tiaras and pass out uh, flying saucer-shaped business cards, that's tacky. And, and so it can't be so. I, I know this. I've never been wrong. Uh, if, if intelligence fails, aesthetics will pull you through. This is and you know people don't like this part of me. I I don't make it comfortable for other squirrels. I don't share the branch very, uh, very generously. Um, You know, a place where I've gotten into lots of trouble is with the face on Mars. I mean, I, I just have not got enough unpleasant things to say about the, the face on Mars, everybody connected with it, the very idea. I mean, talk about an, something which should never have been let out of the box, that's it. I mean, the idea of a tchotchka 17 by 11 miles in size, just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Uh, I don't want to know those aliens they should go back where they came from and take their chotchke with them we need people who can build in light and balance planetary ecologies and uh, do really cool things massive earth moving projects is uh, we've been there we've done that
2: <laughs> we never went to the moon either <laughs> You know, books will appear on these, these subjects. One of the interesting things about UFO experience, though, and, and, and the other kinds of phenomena that you're talking about is the potential for the manipulation of belief systems. And this is something Jacques Vallée talks about mm-hmm. in, in his yeah. books, that um, there's a kind of a sinister undertone that uh, the military is, uh, is bringing people in who are UFO diehards and saying, look at these documents. We can prove that there is is majestic group and then pulling snatching them back and the ufo enthusiasts go out and tell the world about it and and launch stories about aliens under the deserts in nevada collaborating with the military and the newspapers pick it up they're completely poo-pooed um, meanwhile the uh, there's there's tests of uh, a new spy plane called project aurora that travels six times the speed of sound and it leaves this uh, blue it's like a traveling blue ball of light that's clearly a UFO, and if anybody sees it traveling over the desert and picks up the phone and calls the paper, nobody will report it. They, they manage to no,
1: it's it. clear that those black black projects, and Aurora is the one, is being run out there, and that's very exciting. I mean, a plane that can fly to orbit. Yeah, yeah. Terrence,
0: uh, what is your opinion on the biosphere? Did you get into that at all, and John Allen
1: and the whole stick there? I didn't. I knew those people in the early 80s. Of uh, eighty three, eighty one in the Amazon. They said they were headed for Mars. Uh, I don't know. I'm. Uh, they are derivative of J. G. Bennett's school of Gurdjieff, and I've. I have a rule, which is I'm against any th- group that keeps secrets. And Gurdjieffians keep secrets. I'm not against Gurdjieffians per se. In fact, it's kind of too bad they get into the category. But secret keeping is a bad habit. And uh, if you tell me a secret, I'll probably tell it. Uh, nobody ever told me not to say anything. Um, so so my, I've followed them with interest over the years. It's too bad. It's another thing led by a middle-aged white guy, but uh, you know they seem to have uh, they seem to have the pull. But I want to return to something you said. I mean, this can be the last thing about flying saucers. But let me give you my conclusion from this weekend uh, of of how the whole flying saucer thing worked. I mean, this is just one person's opinion, but this is how I explain it to myself. As you know in nineteen forty seven the Rainier lights appeared and if you cast that was the first big modern flying saucer sighting and set off the whole modern flying saucer phenomenon. Well, cast your mind back to the ambiance of nineteen forty seven. Uh, the atom bomb was in forty five, the defeat of Germany, the H bomb was under under development Einstein was advising Truman. I mean, people were on the brink of things they could not understand. Nobody knew what it really, what the H-bomb really meant. What does it mean that we can do this? And they, they said, well, you know, we don't know. Maybe the universe is monitored. And what we're doing is so outrageous that maybe it will bring those who do the monitoring. And then they began to get these reports of these things in the sky. And they said, my God, this must be it. And there were very high-level government secret, secret, secret commissions set up. And they began to study the flying saucers furiously. And they penetrated all those groups. And they penetrated this flying saucer thing from one end to the other. And I'm talking 47 to, say, 54 and they studied it and they studied it and they t- Carl Jung was brought in and all kinds of people were brought in and at the end of that period they concluded that what it was they actually understood it. They concluded that it was the cosmic giggle. They concluded that it was that unreducible nub of nuttiness that haunts reality. And that it was not a threat to the security of North American air defenses. That was their question. Is this a military problem for us? And by 54 or so, they had decided whatever this is, a linguistic virus, a mass hallucination of whatever it is, it is not a problem for the military defense of North America. But they had spent millions infiltrating and completely taking over the weirdest group of screwballs you can imagine. The flying saucer hardcore cultists. And they said, well, what, these people will believe anything. We know that because we've been to their meetings, we've l- read their publications. What should we do with them? Shall we just withdraw all our agents and let them go back to whatever they were doing? And the answer was, no. These people will become a pool for experiments in uh, manipulation of information, (coughs) control of belief systems, response to propaganda, a whole bunch of black box psychological and programming and informational kinds of research will be done on this pool of people because they're so weird if they start telling their relatives that they're hearing voices in the head or something like that, their relatives are, and friends are just going to say, so what else is new? You've been talking like this for years. And I think it was kept like that uh, right up until the present moment. And, but I think it's very low budget. This is not high priority for the CIA. They're sending, as I said, semi-retired guys in scuffed brown shoes who are definitely over the hill but they shepherd the group along and as you said they release these outlandish documents and then they pull them back and some guy comes forward and says it's all a fraud and I know because I was on the inside and I was the one paid to tell you all these things and then somebody else comes forward and says no He's a walk-in and has an implant, and it wasn't that way at all. And it's sort of like the JFK assassination. You know, it, there is no bedrock there. There is no ground zero. And I find these things sort of spooky. I think it's bad mental hygiene to spend too much time with squirrels, and that. Uh, they can infect you yeah you don't know you know put down that groundhog baby elizabeth you don't know where it's been
2: you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time
0: (laughs) don't you just love that put down that groundhog baby elizabeth you don't know where it's been I'm not sure where I'm going to be able to use that phrase, but somehow I've just got to work it into my conversation. Uh, Maybe that's what I'll say the next time one of the uh, purple-haired zeta reticulans tells me that they're just about ready to raise the lost city of Atlantis and all they need is a little money from me to buy the right equipment. So uh, I wonder how many of our fellow slawners Terence alienated with his complete dismissal of crop circles. You know, uh, that's still a really fascinating area of inquiry, and to tell the truth, I've come full circle, so to speak, about crop circles, and uh, yes, the pun's intended. You know, initially I dismissed them as pranks, and then I did a bunch of reading and watched a bunch of DVDs until I got to the point where I convinced myself that, well, the only thing I could come up with is that they were created by extraterrestrial teenagers who were stopping by the Earth, and, uh, well, they're just simply screwing with us in much the same way that some of our human graffiti artists will tag a space just to see the reactions of the people who look at their work. Now today, I'm still not sure what causes the uh, 10% or so of them that haven't been explainable with the current scientific knowledge that we have, so until someone comes up with a better explanation, I'm just going to stick with the teenage extraterrestrial theory of mine. Now, uh, (laughs) moving on, have you uh, read about the aboriginal songlines before? I've heard of them, and in fact, I've heard of that book, but uh, only peripherally when they figure into other stories. However, I do have to admit that I like the analogy Terrence made about the way sounds look on a computer when analyzed that way. The reason it intrigues me is that, uh, well, as I prepare these talks each week, I do the editing in Audacity, which, as you know, is an open-source sound editing software. And as I listen, I'm also seeing what the waveform of those words look like. And now, after many years of doing this, I can sometimes even make out words that people are saying just by the shape of the sounds. And while that's not very earth-shaking, I'm now kind of intrigued to think that uh, maybe I should be looking even deeper into these shapes. Maybe uh, one of our artist friends can do some work with these ideas and get us a little closer to Terrence's idea that uh, words should not be just heard, but they should be beheld as well. Now, uh, there are a few other things Terence said just now that bring comments to my mind, but this podcast has already gone on a bit too long. However, there is one more thing that I think might be worth mentioning, uh, at least for those who sometimes want to grab on to one or two things that Terence may have said uh, several decades ago, and that may not be as relevant today with the uh, passing of time and the ongoing advances in science and technology. Now, while it's obvious that uh, he could only work with the facts and information at hand while he was alive, nonetheless, I find even some of his mistakes to be of value in the way I think today. You know, one of the uh, things that Terrence said uh, in his talk just now that really resonated with me was, belief is a form of infantilism. So let me explain uh, how I see this. Uh, Like every other person in the world, during my childhood, I was given quite a lot of things to believe without question. Things like, it's your country, right or wrong. Uh, Not to mention uh, all of the dogma of the Catholic Church and Western philosophy. So as I entered into adulthood, I found myself wandering around on this vast bedrock of beliefs uh, that I was taught to not question. But after a while, it became obvious to me that some of these beliefs were just plain stupid, and uh, I'll let you decide for yourself which ones I'm talking about. So I finally decided to attempt to become what was once called a free thinker, and I began to question my beliefs. That's when I discovered this huge mountain that's called consciousness, and it was rising above this plane of my bedrock beliefs. So I began following whatever paths I came across that I thought might lead me up the side of this mountain. And eventually I I came to this wide ledge that, for lack of another name, I'll simply call New Age Thinking. And I found this ledge on the side of the Mountain of Consciousness to be quite fascinating. So for many years I followed that ledge all around the mountain, and uh, believe me, the uh, view from that ledge was wonderful much better than the view from the ground of my old beliefs. But I wasn't really getting any closer to the top of the mountain. Then I discovered psychedelics and decided to quit the ledge. And so I began my ascent to the summit, which actually was so far above me that I could only sense it, not see it. And the ascent from that ledge was really exciting. Uh, That is, until the first time I slipped and fell back down In fact, uh, there have been more slips down the mountain than I care to recall. But fortunately, I came across this guy named Terence McKenna. And while I didn't understand very much of what he was saying, his thoughts provided me with some handholds and footholds that I could use to begin my ascent to the summit once again. And so that's how I use the ideas that Terence has given us, as handholds and footholds to help me in my personal assault on the summit of consciousness. Now I don't stay long with any of them for, as you know, if you're climbing a mountain, the secret is to continue onward and upward. Maybe you'll have to backtrack every once in a while, but the mission is to keep climbing because to remain in one place is definitely not safe. Another little trick that I use is something I learned while I was working as a deckhand on a square rig sailing ship during a Pacific crossing. As soon as we cleared the jetty in California and headed west, the captain gave the order to go aloft and set the sails. One of our crew members was a uh, young man who, well, he got about halfway up the rigging and then just froze. And when I say he froze, (laughs) that's a real understatement. Uh, Because two of us went over to where he was and we tried to pry him loose from the rigging that he was clinging to, but even with two of us, we couldn't budge his arm hold. You know, it was was really amazing. I've, I've actually never seen anything like it since. So our old bosun, Bill Bartz was his name and he was as good a seaman as you'll ever find. Well, he climbed up into the rigging and I figured he would probably just uh, put a line around the kid and probably cold cock him with a belaying pin or something so that we could lower him to the deck. And keep in mind this is uh, all taking place about 40 feet above the deck and on a mast that was whipping back and forth as our ship rolled from beam to beam in a rather confused sea. Uh, and Bill Bartz was as tough a character as you'll ever find. But he had a different tactic in mind. He just climbed up to that young sailor and said, what's wrong, son? And he said it in the most calming voice you could imagine. So the kid said, uh, well, he just got up to where he was. He took a look down and he just froze from a fear of falling. So Bill said, here's the trick. Don't look down, son. Only look up and you'll be fine. And with that, the uh, young man looked up and magically just continued his climb up to where the rest of us were waiting for him. And after that, he never had another problem with climbing up into the rigging. And so, that's how I look at my ascent to the summit of the mountain of consciousness. I can't see the summit, and I might even be shocked if I could. But for now, I just keep looking up and taking it one handhold at a time. And that's why the words of Terrence McKenna mean so much to me. They are my handholds on this exciting journey that you and I are now on. So, what do you say? Let's keep climbing. But don't forget to always look up. (laughs) And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.